We don't actually know what was going on in our hominid ancestors. And, you know, in order to reconstruct that, the best thing we can do at this, at this time is to know what's going on in our closest living relatives. The conversations at the interval take place a few times a month at the Long Now Foundation's bar, cafe, and museum venue, The Interval, in San Francisco. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that's working to build the economic infrastructure of the internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payments from customers all over the world. Tonight is a, a talk where we're, we're honored to have a, uh, a, a, um, a speaker who is part of the uh, fellow, uh, fellowship program actually uh, at Stanford's uh, CASBIS, the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences. We've had a fantastic ongoing partnership with CASBIS. Um, this is, I believe, the third uh, CASBIS speaker so far this year, and we're, uh, we're just really thrilled. Uh, matter of fact, we have a former speaker uh, from earlier in the year in, in the house. Uh, good to see you, Chris. Um, and um, I think we have some brochures out for CASBIS. It's, it's a fantastic program that's been uh, going on uh, at, at, uh, in Palo Alto uh, since the, the middle of the last century. And really some of the finest uh, social scientists uh, are there every year. They have their own set of programs and, uh, and media from past talks. Uh, people like Daniel Kahneman, actually Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a former CASBIS fellow. So uh, we thank them for the great partnership that this has been and encourage you to check them out because uh, they've got things you might be interested in as well. Um, tonight's speaker, you know, um, this is an area and, and um, where uh, the the history it's 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 such an interesting place because um, Elizabeth is going to be talking about her work uh, with chimpanzees and other apes and. Uh, and yet, it's also work on humans, and we're, we'll find that this area uh, that is, is is studying these creatures, uh, there's so much that we learn about ourselves, and it's really a crossroads from evolutionary biology to anthropology and archaeology. Uh, uh, there, there are so many uh, different areas that are crossing their paths uh, and adjacent to the work that she does. Um, Elizabeth Lonsdorf uh, is a primatologist. She's Associate Professor of Psychology and Biological Foundations of Behavior uh, at Franklin and Marshall College. She's now in her 20th year uh, of working at Gombe National Park in Tanzania. Uh, and we are just thrilled to, to have her here. That was a big round of applause for Elizabeth Lonsdorf. Thank you. Thank you, Michael, for that great introduction. I'm not good at managing multiple devices, so just bear with me as I, as I get used to things here. I'm really excited to be here as part of this partnership between Long Now and CASPIS. It's been a fantastic year for me, and a lot of my fellow fellows are in the audience here, and the fact that it's the end of April means we have to leave soon, which makes me very sad. But I'm glad to have this be kind of a final event of my time here and talk to you about... Um, kind of the long-term approach that we are taking to study development and, and how apes grow up in our closest living relatives. And those animals are, of course, the chimpanzee here on your left and the gorilla here on your right. 
So first I want to make sure that um, we're all on board with who the five great ape species are. I'm just going to be talking about two of them tonight in the context of the, of the fifth. But um, So on your top left there, you've got the orangutans of Southeast Asia. I'm not going to be talking to them about tonight, but they are in this group of our primate family. On the top right, you have gorillas. We'll be talking about them tonight. On the bottom left and right, you have the two animals that are most closely related to us in the world. That is the chimpanzee on the left and the bonobo on the right. So the bonobo is a very chimpanzee-like animal, but very different, and we can, we can talk about that if you want. The fifth grade ape is, of course, shown here in its most full and beautiful state of Kate and Leo in the Titanic. My husband's rolling his eyes like, I cannot believe you managed to get Leo in yet another talk. Um, <laughs> so these are our Friday great ape species. This is your primate family, and we're going to talk about the linkages between them tonight. Okay, so my story starts with um, these three women that have been now come to be known the trimates, little play on words there, who are really... Um, were kind of the, the, the parents, the mothers of the long-term study of our closest living relatives, the great apes. We have Diane Fossey, who studied gorillas, of course, Jane Goodall studying chimpanzees, and Barute Galdikas, who studies orangutans. And they come from one single parentage line, and his name is Louis Leakey. That is their academic father, and you can see him here with a very young... Jane Goodall. So Lewis was uh, a paleoanthropologist. He was famous for being very bombastic and um, kind of operating outside the normal realms of how his science worked at the time. He had this crazy idea that we would find the origins of modern humans in Africa, which we did. Um, <laughs> he also had this crazy idea that behavior doesn't fossilize, which it doesn't, and so that we should look to our closest living relatives in the animal kingdom if we wanted to understand the human, the evolution of human behavior. So he had this other crazy idea to send women out into the wilds of Africa to watch great apes. He had a variety of reasons for thinking that women would do this better than men, and we can talk about that afterwards if you would like. So Jane went, to, saved up all her money from her secretary job, she went to Kenya with that money, because she always loved animals, and kind of stormed into Louis Leakey's office in the National Museums of Kenya and said, I would like to you know, do something with animals. And he said, great, you're going to Tanzania. That's like pretty much literally what happened. Um, and the British government said, slow your roll there, Louis. We are not sending a young 26-year-old blonde woman to Tanzania to study apes without an escort. And by escort, they of course meant a man, um, right? They didn't want her to go without a man to protect her. And she said, okay, great, I'll take an escort. And she took her mother, Van. <laughs> so this is Van Goodall, up on her left, on the beach at Gombe, and then in her tent. And so Van and Jane is who set, set up the study of chimpanzees at Gombe for the first two years. So Jane was walking into a place where the chimpanzees were very scared of humans. They had been hunted. Um, they were not comfortable with her being in their presence. So she did a very um, kind of, at the time, thought to be kind of a crazy thing. She just went to this place called Jane's Peak. And every day she sat in the same clothes with the same equipment and was very just still and watched them across the valley and stayed very consistent, very predictable until the chimps kind of lost their fear from far away. And then she subsequently, over many years, was able to get them to lose their fear from very close up. Um, Jane, you know, much like her mentor, Lewis, 
there were kind of two things about her. She was very um, bold and brave and kind of wanted to do things her own way. She also didn't have any formal college education. She had only gone to secretary or school. So she decided like, oh, the best way to get to understand these animals is to study them as individuals. I'd like to learn who they are. I'd like to know their personalities. I'd like to learn about who their friends are, their emotions. And she did crazy things like giving them names instead of using numbers to identify them. And the scientific establishment at the time was like, that's really cute, sweetie, but like, that's not the way we do things. Um, and now here we are 60 years later, <laughs> and the Gombe study is still going strong, as I'm evidence of standing in front of you. So what Jane really changed in the, in the field of studying animal behavior was making it okay eventually to think about these animals in terms of being individuals, with individual personal relationships, friendships, personalities, emotions, um, and really conducting close observation of individuals and their individual stories. That's what was really different about Jane's study with the chimps. Now, Jane was one of these trimates, as I mentioned before, and what's really interesting about these three is they really did operate kind of like siblings. So this is kind of a story you have to dig, dig to, to find out, but Jane was very much the older sibling, like the responsible, you know, one. Um, Diane has been reported to be the kind of the, the jealous middle sibling. And Barute was like the happy baby who's just happy to be there with everybody. Um, and so the, Lewis kind of set up this system where after Jane's study became a success and he met Diane, and Diane, very similar to Jane, walked up to him and said, I want to do what she did, but with a different animal. He had this proving ground for Diane and then Barute. And what he did was he would first send them to Van Goodall in London. They would have to stay with Van for several weeks until she determined that they were okay. And then he would send them to Jane in Gombe so she could field test them and make sure they were okay. Now, nobody, Jane has never revealed what these metrics were, so um, we don't know. But at any rate, Diane passed the test and ended up, as I'll cover later at Karasoki, What's interesting about um, Diane is, is, like Jane, she always had more of an affinity for animals growing up than the normal girl. Um, she actually got along with animals quite much more than she did with people. She had a difficult childhood, and she was desperate to be a veterinarian, but she was really bad at chemistry and physics. So instead, she became an occupational therapist with children. She was actually fully fledged in her career when she saw Louis Leakey give a talk and walked up to him afterwards and said, that's what I want to do. And so in 1967, Jane started Gombe in 1960, Diane went out in 1967 to Rwanda and started the Karasoke Research Center and the long-term study of mountain gorillas there. She did take a page out of Jane's book and really think about studying these animals as individuals with individual stories and histories and, and aspects to them. She habituated the animals to her presence, much less like Jane did. And she did end up forging a very close relationship with a particular animal, a particular gorilla named Digit. And that's Digit there looking at her field notes with her. Um, <laughs> Digit, you know, they really, really accepted Diane into their, into their community there, the gorillas. And so she forges a very strong bond with Digit. She has written about this as he was like her, her true best friend. And he really greased the wheels with the other gorillas. Like he accepted her and the other gorillas were like, oh, okay, she must be all right. So Digit really paved her way here. And this was a friendship that would last all of Digit's life 
this picture was taken 10 years later. Digit's a fully grown adult gorilla who would seem to be quite terrifying to sit next to, but they were, they were very close friends until his death. Now, his death is what changed Diane's life forever. So Diane, in a morning in 1977, got a report that poachers were in her area in Rwanda. She went out to check her groups, and she found Digit with his head and his hands removed. Um, so she went, did a full 180 at that point from behavioral research and went 100% into anti-poaching and protection of the gorillas in her area. And her methods for doing this were quite unorthodox. They were outside of what we would envision as any, you know, kind of standardized conservation practices that we would do today. Um, she really chased, she basically chased after the poachers with like a knife and chased them off. And so her, her, her anti-poaching efforts brought a lot of anger to the poaching community. And in 1985, she was killed in her research camp in a crime that has never been solved. So she is buried next to her best friend, Digit. You can actually visit her grave site in Rwanda. So Diane's personal story is over, um, but there is a legacy of both these women that I just want to touch on before I, I launch into what I specifically work on. Um, Jane is very much with us. She's very much alive and well. She has more energy than all of us in this room. Um, her legacy is very strong. This picture in the middle is taken of a, a group of either current or former researchers at Gombe taken about two years ago. Um, Jane, let me see if I can work this thing. Jane's here in the middle. I'm over here. Um, so this was taken about two years ago. And then around you, you see where we've put um, a lot of focus in the last couple of decades is bringing into the formal um, research training our Tanzanian counterparts in Tanzania. And there's several of our Tanzanian PhDs and, and veter doctors of veterinary medicine there. The Diane Fossey legacy, despite her passing many years ago now, is also quite strong. An incredible presence in Rwanda, working very cooperatively with the government in terms of both uh, behavioral research and anti-poaching. And Diane's legacy of especially involving women in field research is clear there as you look at the pictures around the, around the edges. Okay, so now I'm going to launch into more of the, the sciencey stuff. That's, that's the background storytelling bit. And I want to give you a quick crash course in these two great apes, especially in terms of um, their social organization and how it's a bit different between the two species. So chimpanzees over here on the left have what's called a fission-fusion social structure. And that sounds a little bit confusing, but it's basically our social structure, right? You wake up in the morning, you're with your most, most closely bonded bond partner. You go maybe to the gym or the coffee shop, that's a different part of your community, a different group of individuals. You go to work, that's a different part of your community. So you're fusing with certain groups and fissioning from them throughout the day. So whoever you're with during the day changes on a minute-to-minute -minute hourly basis. That's the chimpanzee social structure. So at any given moment, your target chimpanzee that you're taking behavioral data on could be alone or could be with 40 other individuals. Um, in the gorilla, it's quite different because they're a very cohesive, tight social group, headed by the silverback male, which you can see there in that photo. So the gor typical gorilla social structure is that silverback male, he's usually got three or four wives and all their kids, and that's a tight, cohesive social group that spends all day, every day together, okay? So in a gorilla community, 
All the babies of that group belong to that silverback male. In a chimpanzee community, the mating system is promiscuous. Anybody could be the dad of that baby, okay? So those are some important differences to keep in mind. So the, the story I'm gonna tell you today is really about um, a new study that my collaborators and I are embarking on to better understand ape life history. So life history is just the series of variables that describe kind of the life cycle of an animal. We have these, everybody can, can be kind of reduced down to these variables. And so I'll give you an example of the numbers for these variables when it comes to chimpanzees. So gestation length, about eight months, kind of like us. Age at weaning, this is what's the one that's gonna be important for this talk, anywhere from four to seven years, okay? Interbirth interval kinda maps on that. It's about three to five years. That's the, the interval between babies. Age at first reproduction, about 12 to 14 for females and female chimpanzees. Litter size, in this case is one. You have one ape baby at a time, typically. You know, a meerkat or whatever is gonna have a whole bunch more. Um, the maximum lifespan for female chimpanzees, somewhere around 50, for males, somewhere around 45. Okay, so that's the scope of variables that we're working within. So human babies are quite different than the babies of our closest living relative in the animal kingdom. And our life history characteristics are very different. So we have really big neonates, really big infants, relative to our body size, and they have really big heads. Okay, this is a great example, and I don't feel bad disparaging that baby because it's mine. So, <laughs> um, he has a really big head. Uh, he's 10 now, it's kind of evened out a little bit, but um, what's interesting is that typically when an animal has very large neonates, like an elephant or a whale, it means that the investment, that maternal investment in that baby is so large that the, the interbirth interval is very extended, right? So if you have a very big baby that's a very expensive baby, not just in terms of money, um, and that means you have to have a longer time between your babies. What humans do that's a little different is we have an earlier age at weaning than would be expected by the size of our babies. We wean on average at about two years if you're looking cross-culturally. And we have a short interbirth interval. So somehow humans have ramped up investment in these really big expensive babies, but also ramped up fertility and shortened the interbirth interval, okay? We have really prolonged growth during childhood. Kids take forever to grow up, and I'm feeling that today because of something that happened at school. Um, <laughs> we have a relatively later age at first birth, thank God, um, and we have a relatively longer lifespan. So these are kind of unique characteristics of human life history. And essentially, we think that those are tied to some very unique aspects of human behavior. So because we have really big brains, that doesn't necessarily, that doesn't map directly onto intelligence, but it has to do with complexity. And especially in the case of humans, we think it has to do with social complexity. So I talked to you about chimp social structure and gorilla social structure. Humans have really amped up sociality. I mean, I'm talking to a whole bunch of you, like we're friends, and apes not gonna do that. Right, so that kind of that kind of open sociality with strangers—that's a—that's a uniquely human characteristic. Um, ultra cooperation. I'm saying ultra because five apes are never going to help you push your car out of the snow. Right? It's not going to happen. But five strangers will. Right? So these are things that you, we just don't see in the animal kingdom. This kind of 
intensive sociology, this helping out of strangers, we just don't see it. Tied to that, we think, are the intense kind of complexity of the social customs and norms we've developed as humans. That goes along with laws and ethics. And then we have very um, complex outcroppings of what we call our cumulative culture. So we have cultural differences that we build on and our culture advances at a dizzying rate compared to um, other animals in the animal kingdom. Okay, so this is what's, what's kind of neat about us. And what the project that I'm going to tell you about tonight uh, is trying to deal with is kind of how did we get here and, and is part of the roadmap of how we got here, how we got to be so weird as humans, is it have to do with these changes in development we see in terms of these really large expensive babies that we somehow managed to produce more quickly with um, an accelerated weaning process, okay? So we don't actually know what was going on in our hominid ancestors. And, you know, in order to reconstruct that, the best thing we can do at this, at this time is to know what's going on in our closest living relatives. But we actually know really small amounts about weaning in great apes. We know virtually nothing about weaning in great apes. So that's, that's the kind of life history character I'm going to focus on tonight to talk to you about. All right, so this is a, this is a new project that's, you know, under a year old. Um, and we're kind of integrating the long-term approach of, of Jane and Diane and data collection with some new technologies to really try and get at, the, uh, in various ways, weaning in mountain gorillas and chimpanzees, the two animals that are most like us, that are most likely um, some sort of representative for where we came from, okay? This is in partnership with many, many people, but the Jane Goodall Institute, the Fossey Fund, Max Planck Institute, uh, my institution, Franklin and Marshall College, and George Washington University. And we've got cute baby apes there, so that's always good. Okay, so the first thing we, we aim to do in this project is to really well characterize those dietary transitions from exclusively feeding on mother's milk to um, that transition to solid food. And we know that, that, that it's a process, not, not a hard line. And the way we have done this up to this point is by doing behavioral observations, by watching these apes for years and years and years and documenting when they're suckling at their mother's breast and when they start feeding on solid food. Now, remember, I mentioned to you that weaning in apes takes four to seven years. It's a really long period of time. And of course, they're eating solid food well before seven years old. And so what we want to do in this project is really narrow that window or understand that window um, much better. And so in addition to this behavioral approach of really analyzing our long-term data for suckling behavior and eating solid foods, um, what we're doing is collecting a lot of ape poop, okay? Ape poop is gold in my world. Like, you can find out so many things from ape poop, you have no idea how stressed they are, what diseases they have, like what they ate yesterday, it's amazing. One of the newer things you can find out from ape poop is if you analyze the stable isotopes in that poop, you can actually figure out what trophic level an infant is relative to its mother. So you can measure stable isotopes of nitrogen, and essentially, if the kid is enriched in nitrogen relative to the mother, that means that that kid is still a trophic level above the mom, i.e., I'm still eating mom. 
I'm still feeding primarily on mom, right? And when the levels of nitrogen come down to the same as mom, you know that the contribution of mother's milk to the diet has leveled off and they're eating, surviving primarily on solid food. So this has been done in one study in great apes by Yulia Baduscu. Um, and this is, don't worry about what the graph is saying all that much. What's important is that horizontal line is infant age and months, and anything above the line is when the kid is eating mom, and anything on the line is when the kid is not. And what this graph tells you is that around 25 to 30 months old, the kid looks just like the mom. The kid is no longer eating mom at that point. That's less than a three-year-old, and remember I told you that weaning occurs between four and seven. So they're nutritionally independent of mom well before they stop weaning, which is kind of weird, right? So we want to um, narrow that window a little bit more, understand that a little bit better, get more data from chimps and also from gorillas, because that type of work has never been done in gorillas. The second thing we want to do is figure out that huge window, four to seven years old, what are the sources of variation in there? Um, there's various theory that would suggest that that might change depending on maternal age, whether mom is large body sized or in better body condition. There's some theory that suggests that infants have to reach a particular size themselves to be weaned, so infant size for age. Birth order, maybe firstborn kids are different than secondborn kids. Maybe infant sex matters. We just have no idea what could contribute to this big variation that we see. So a lot of these variables we can understand from our long-term records, right? Maternal age, we know who these moms are, we know when they were born, we know how old they are. But, and I should say, I say that like it's really simple, it's only because these studies have been going on more than 50 years. Okay, so let me, let me, let me point that out there. That's why we know that. We know the birth order, we know the infant sex, obviously. But we don't have, or we didn't have until recently, a good non-invasive way to study size in wild animals. Um, Attempts to measure a wild chimpanzee or gorilla will fail um, if you ask them to step on a scale or hold up a ruler. I mean, you might not get the ruler or your arm back. Um, so we've had to develop ways that, that do this without disturbing them. And, and what's come out of um, some research actually on horses and other in mammals is this approach of a parallel laser photogrammetry. So essentially, you build this box here on the left, which that's the exact box I just built in December. You try to get it through airport security all the way to Tanzania, which was surprisingly easy. Um, and what that does is it, it, it's a series of, it's a laser beam split by two prisms and they're perfectly parallel all the time. And because they're perfectly parallel all the time, they're always exactly four centimeters apart. So you take that to the field, um, you give your collaborators the box, they put it on a camera, they point it at a chimp, and now you have a scale. You're projecting something exactly four centimeters apart onto a wild animal, you can use that as a scale to measure body size. Okay, that's, that's the, our little scale blown up because those dots are pretty hard to see. This doesn't bother them. These chimpanzees are used to weird people pointing weird stuff at them all the time because the study's been going on 60 years, so this doesn't bother them. So again, we're doing this in both gorillas and chimpanzees to, to try and suss out some of these sources of variation. New tech with long-term data. Okay, now we get to some cool stuff, which is outside my direct area of expertise, but I've had to learn a lot putting this project together. Um, because coming from the perspective of behavior, I always was like, why do people care about bones? Like, behavior is where the interesting stuff is, right? Totally wrong. 
Um, so what we're doing here is we're really trying to speak to the anthropological record and try and understand how dental proxies of weaning line up with those behavioral and physiological proxies that I just introduced to you. So we're really using um, a variety of measures on teeth to understand um, the weaning history of in known individuals with known suckling histories. Okay, so I'm gonna talk about a molar for a second. So the first molar, M1, is associated in many, many primates, um, the emergence of that molar with weaning. It's, it's seen as a good dental proxy of weaning in, in a variety of living primates, and it's often used when you're talking about hominid samples to infer weaning in our human ancestors whose, whose skeletons have been, have been dug up from um, paleoanthropological investigations. So those are from deceased animals. Another way that you can study molar emergence, and kind of more fun in my perspective, is to study it in living animals. And how do you do this? You go out and you follow around baby chimpanzees and gorillas, and when they laugh, which they do a lot, when they're playing, you take pictures of their open mouth, right? This is like the best job ever, right? You follow around baby chimpanzees, wait for them to laugh, take a picture. And you can see here, there's, there's a chimpanzee laughing there on the left. This is the work of, of my colleague, Zareen Machanda, here on the right. And you can actually see, if you've got good enough pictures, when that first molar starts to emerge in living apes with documented suckling histories, okay? So this isn't the case of we just have the bones, we have the bones and the behavior in living animals. And it turns out that chimps and gorillas have a very different, are very different in terms of how much suckling and M1 emergence matches up. Gorillas here on the bottom, mountain gorillas, weaning is about at three, M1 emergence is about at three. So they match up really tightly. Chimpanzees, which are more like us, um, in terms of our evolutionary history, it's a total disconnect. M1 emergence is at about three years, and weaning is somewhere around five years. They're not matched up at all. So what does this mean for when we dig hominid ancestors you know, out of the ground? Is that really a good proxy for weaning? We're not sure. And we hope to find out through this research. Okay, the other thing about teeth that's really cool is that tooth enamel is an incremental tissue, meaning it's laid down in, with a particular periodicity. And if you have accumulated skeletons, because you're lucky enough to work at a site where data's been collected for 50 or 60 years, they also collect skeletons of deceased individuals, you can analyze those teeth for a whole bunch of stuff that's hiding in their enamel. So you get a, this is a gorilla tooth, you get a tooth, you embed it in a matrix, you start taking thin sections of it, and you start throwing it under a microscope. Okay, so when you're looking at this microscope, what's really nice is basically that the ridges in the dental enamel are like a clock. The long lines, the kind of ones going like this, the striae of Retzius, they're laid down pretty much on a weekly basis, and the little cross hatches are laid down on a daily basis. So you have a clock that can account for the day-to-day -day development of that individual in their enamel. All you need is time zero. And very nicely, there is a time zero. There's a neonatal line. So you know time zero, you know how many weeks and days have been laid down before any event, including social stressors and a stress like weaning. Okay, so you can't see these at the top. I'm gonna blow them up. 
What happens is that when there's defects in the enamel, when there's perturbations that where the pattern gets messed up, that means that something has happened that's stressful or a change in that animal. These are those perturbations blown up. You can see at week 57, at week 71, and at week 85, something stressful happened in this animal. You go back to the behavioral records, you can understand what that is. And then weaning has a very distinct signal as well. So the, this, this clock embedded in the dental enamel is really allowing us to get a really precise timeline of weaning in these individuals, whereas before we're just watching it, whether they're suckling or not. Okay, now here's the, the coolest kind of last bit. And this is chemistry. So if there's chemists in the audience, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, this, is, this is not a gorilla or a chimp tooth. This is a macaque tooth there on the right. So this is serial sampling of the enamel from a macaque tooth, another, another primate. And what happens as that enamel is laid down is that the chemical composition changes based on what they're eating. So let me get my little pointer out again. So here, this is the prenatal period. It's all green and blue because that's low barium, because that's the maternal diet. So that's just the food coming across the placental barrier. Um, it's the same chemical composition as what the mom is eating, basically. Then here's birth, this first dotted line. And everything here, red and orange and yellow, is enriched in barium. Breast milk is super high in its barium to calcium concentration. That is actually observable in the sampling of the enamel. And then here you can see this transitional, this, this represents a transitional feeding to solid food, and then this is totally solid food here. So we can look at the chemical composition to say precisely when the maternal milk contribution starts to decline and map that onto our clock from the histology, which is super cool, right? <laughs> Especially me as a behaviorist, I'm like, yeah, well, they stopped suckling at seven. And they're like, yeah, but they've been eating solid food for four years. Like, what is happening in that time frame? So to wrap up, to sum up, this is a new project. It's kind of just, um, just launched this year. But we're going from behavioral observations of suckling in live apes. That's all we know about weaning, essentially. We're collecting a lot of poop. <laughs> We're going to figure out the physiological indicators of weaning. We're going to use uh, kind of new photographic techniques to understand the variation and what might be causing some of the variation in weaning that we see. We're going to overlay with all that data evidence from the dental record. And in this case, we can add a chemical analysis of enamel as well to get an even more precise timeline of weaning. And we can actually, what's super cool because of Jane and Diane's work, is that we can do that in individuals with documented suckling data from 40 years ago. So it's a real kind of an incredible compilation of being able to take this long-term behavioral data and overlay it with new techniques to understand a really critical life history characteristic in our closest living relatives. So to sum up, what we're trying to do is figure out how we got to these big expensive babies that we somehow ramped up production of by weaning them earlier relative to the great apes and to, in order to inform what might have been going on in our hominid ancestors, but the way that we can address that at the moment is with living apes. So that's the kind of question mark that we're attempting to take away with this project. And the, and the kind of bigger moral of the story is that like when you take long-term data 
and you overlay some new techniques in isotope ecology and in photogrammetry, you can answer questions that could never be answered before. And I can't say like how incredibly grateful and gratifying it is to work at a site that has been going on 60 years like Gombe, and in the case of the site, uh, Diane's site in Rwanda, over 50 years, we just wouldn't be able to do this unless they had continued the studies for decades. And whenever I talk to people, they're like, oh, God, chimpanzees. I mean, don't we know everything yet? Like, Jane went there in, what, 1960? And I'm like, no, because now we can do chemistry on tooth enamel. And we can do all this cool new stuff. So it just, it lays the groundwork um, for really an en endless series of investigation as the new technology develops. So with that, I, I, I can't um, stop without acknowledging that this is the work of very, very many people. My direct collaborators on this project are listed here, along with the agencies that support us in Tanzania and the US. And then in particular, in the Jane Goodall Institute, the, the site where I focus most of my work, these incredible people that are there on the ground every day collecting this data. And then the funders that have supported this project, in particular the National Science Foundation is the current grant we're working under. So with that, I'm going to stop. I'm going to get my cocktail and then answer questions. And we'll have some questions. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you Elizabeth. Thank you so much. Um, Where do you want to be? Where do you want um, to be? Why don't you uh, have sit on that okay. side? But then and uh, and I'll uh, we will get you a beverage. Uh, Directly, I'm going, to I'm going to start you off with a couple of questions, and okay. we'll have questions from you, so please start thinking about your questions. We'll have a mic going around. Um, I want to ask a couple just sort of details to make sure I understand things there, because I know less about teeth than you do, and I'm excited to learn more. Um, actually, the first one was, so you talked about uh, they're nutritionally independent from their mothers, but they haven't weaned yet. Yeah. So they're still nursing. They're still doing something. Uh-huh. I mean, it could be they just like having their mouth there. It's comforting. Four oh, ways to play oh, is the oh, official cocktail like of tonight's talk. Five ways to play. Yes. Mm. That's Cheers. What we're, that's what we're trying to figure out. I mean, yeah. if they're... So we know that orphans who, who lose their mother at about age four, mm -hmm. about 50% of the time they make it. And, and the thought there is that those that don't have not fully weaned and that there's variation in that weaning process. But yeah, it looks like the maternal contribution of milk ends at somewhere around two to three years. And yet sometimes they suckle for this incredibly long time. So is that because we're seeing the tail ends of the distribution, the variation? Um, is that just, or that, is that individual who's suckling till seven really still getting most of their nutrition from the milk? We don't know. That's what we're trying to figure out is how much of this is really a physiological need versus kind of a behavioral comfort um, uh, behavior. And, and so the, the data on that that you're getting from the teeth lined up with the poop data from earlier for that? Teeth, basically? poop, yeah. and behavior. Yeah, yeah. all yeah. together in yeah. a big mess. Yeah. Um, <laughs> on, on the teeth stuff, and this is my pure ignorance on, on how teeth work, uh, but... but how long, those, those lines that are being laid down, that's happening through development or through their entire life? What, what's, can you, can you explain how that works? It's happening through their entire life. Okay. Yeah, and it actually, happens, it actually happens in utero. So you can see birth, I mean, that neonatal line is at birth, right? And then the enamel gets laid down, but the, but the, the M1, that molar one, is there in the fetus. I mean, it's already there. 
right? So we can, we can time things from prenatal times throughout life. Well, the problem is with the old ones, their teeth fall out and then we don't have as many teeth right. from them. Right. So we do have some But you have very, full access to them. <laughs> we, have very, we have some skeletons actually once we, since we've started doing this that we've, that we've brought out of the archives that had only two or three teeth left, so yeah. Um, part of the aging process or some sort of dental disease that we can think of, but like our very old males that, that live um, till, you know, late 40s, 50s, um, it, in there you can tell they're old by their teeth. I mean, they don't have dental care, like they don't have a dental plan. And so if, if something has happened um, and, and it affects the teeth, it, it goes through the whole jawline. And um, and so you're you're doing this work now with a a teeth expert. What's his actual? Um, her. Her. Sorry. <laughs> My sorry. Of course, I should have known because I mean, it's, it's primatology. Yeah, so yeah, it's primates. Uh, <laughs> what, what's what's her her expertise? Is so in? her expertise is in this hard tissue biology. So understanding, reading the teeth. That's her expertise. This is my colleague at George Washington University. And so we kind of came up with this project because I was really interested in the behavioral aspects of, of infant development and weaning. And she was like, well, you know, there's all these new things we can do with teeth. And then we said, okay, well, what can we do in living apes? And we found the stuff we could do with the poop and then put it all together. Um, and I think it just sort of emphasizes that this work you're doing because of its connection with human evolutionary biology and, and all the, and the fossil work that's been done as well. You really, it seems like you're at this sort of crossroads of, of different disciplines. And in fact, we, you were saying you're based in a psychology department. There's a lot of range in where primatologists actually sit in their thing. Can you, can you just tell us a little yeah, bit more I about... Yeah, I mean, primate, primatologists are weird because depending on your particular question that you like to ask, you might sit in a psychology department if it's a question about cognition. You might sit in a biology department if it's a, if it's a question about um, evolution, phylogeny, taxonomy. You might sit in an anthropology department if you're interested in, um, you know, evolutionarily ancient hominids and how primates are a model for that. So what's fun for me is that I kind of like all of those questions. Um, and so I've been able to develop projects where I get to collaborate with people that do that stuff. So I can sit kind of in my, my comfort zone relative to my area of expertise, but then I get to learn about how to read teeth. Yeah. yeah. Um, and we have a question. Uh, thanks to everybody who's watching on the live stream. Long now members are watching uh, us uh, everywhere now, hopefully. Um, and we had a question, which is a great question. Um, the, there ha it has been uh, these, these prominent names are, are all uh, female researchers, and is that, um, what, what do you attribute that to, or what's sort of the history of that beyond uh, the, the trimates? Does that continue beyond the trimates well? As I well? think it, it actually comes somewhat from the history of the trimates. So the story goes that Louis uh, Leakey, when he decided to send Jane out as an untrained secretary, um, who'd had no formal education. In fact, she never got a bachelor's degree. She went straight for her PhD. Um, he thought an untrained scientist would be better able to observe apes without bias. He thought that education would cloud their, um, their thinking because at the time, animal behavior was really a, a 
not uh, open to the idea of, of animals having really complex individual agency over their behavior. It was more kind of a, a pigeon in a Skinner box kind of thing. So he thought, take away all that training. I, I want somebody who will just sit and observe quietly. And then the sit and observe quietly part, he said that he thought women would do that better. <laughs> the, the other side of that story is he liked being around young, beautiful women. <laughs> So I think it's somewhere probably a little bit of both. A little so, bit of both. So we're but those, those three women did not fail him in you know, setting the stage for decadal-long studies of apes that have been incredibly successful. So uh, I've got another question about them. First, I want to point out Joe. There's Joe. Uh, he's got the mic in the audience, so get his attention. He's going to be lining up the questions uh, after, after I ask you this one uh, more, but, but look for him, and we'll get your questions, too. So it's this amazing... You have these, these three researchers who are each not coming from a traditional scientific research background. Barute did. The, okay. the, the woman who studies orangutans came trained as a, a, pers a, a biologist interested in animals, but Jane and Diane certainly did not. So, so clearly it, it worked. They had great ideas. I'm curious, to the extent that you know, were they coordinating? Were they kind of l doing parallel kind of techniques with the different populations? And, and is that or what other things to say yeah, about Yeah, you know, that? what's kind of shocking for me to report about this project is that this is the first real um, scientific collaboration using the behavioral data between the Jane site and the Diane site, um, which is interesting given their history as academic siblings and um, the fact that Diane modeled a lot of the way that she did things off of Jane. But I mean, if you think about it, like there wasn't email I mean, yeah. one was in Tanzania yeah. and one was in Rwanda. How much are you going to coordinate? And they're fighting off poachers and they're fighting malaria. I mean, it wasn't as easy to do collaborative science, I think, as it is today. Yeah. And then, of course, um, you know, Jane wrote her big book, this tome that we call the Gombe Bible in 1986, and Diane had already been killed. So I think it took so long to amass data to look at the long-term perspective, and then Diane was already gone by that point. You have a question back there. Great presentation and amazing work you guys doing, girls doing. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just wanted to clarify a few things. And if I understand correctly from your presentation, the winning age is around, uh, I mean, time is around, let's say, six years, right? Four to six. Yeah. So, but the uh, time between the gestations is actually half of that, right? So around well, three a, to four. It's about three to five years. Three to five. Yeah. So my question is, do they actually give both in between and actually do uh, feed two siblings at a okay. time? Yeah, so this is interesting. And how does that work around? And this is where, this is where the accumulation... So, so to put this in context for you, uh, um, there's a hundred chimpanzees under observation at Gombe, and there's about two or three hundred gorillas under observation at Karasoki. Only half of those are female, and they're having a baby every four to five years. So it takes a long time to accumulate these metrics, right? Um, and to be able to get means and the tails of the distribution. And the, in terms of that interesting question about why doesn't the inner birth interval and weaning line up perfectly, what's interesting is that we have seen cases where um, where a mother with a particularly short interbirth interval will occasionally nurse that older offspring once the, the baby arrives. But even then, that's more than a year after that older offspring has stopped. 
But we also have these mothers that have these interbirth intervals that are six or so years. And that kid keeps nursing and occasionally, this is what's interesting, she does get pregnant and give birth to another baby who doesn't make it. And that older kid never stops, never stops. Goes, like I would say goes right back to the nipple, but literally never stops. Is nursing right up until birth and then if the baby dies early, then keeps nursing. So it's all those kind of interesting variability that we just don't have a handle on and that's what we're we're trying to get at here but but the mother and, and i should say it's different um across different chimpanzee communities so different chimpanzee communities studied in different places in africa have slightly different weaning ages and it seems to be different according to um well maybe maybe it's different according to the dominant status of the mother and uh, but the the mother would nurse both like on a one-off thing, like not, not consistent. It's just that the older sibling would kind of hop back on for a little bit. How much, um, maybe it'd be great if you could tell us a little bit about what it's like on site, mm -hmm. um, because are, are all the observations firsthand? Are there, are there cameras around? What's, what's, um, what's no. the nature, what's the right. size, what's the nature of this yeah. condition? So when you are, at, this is how it works at, at Gombe, it's a little bit different um, at Karasoki in Rwanda because they're, they have more limited time with the gorillas, but what I do when I'm at Gombe is that I wake up very early in the morning. We know where the chimps have slept the night before because they actually build a night nest in the trees. And if you follow them until late in the day when they build that nest, you're like, great, that's where you'll be at 6 a.m. tomorrow. So you wake up so that you're with them at 6 a.m. And what our on-site researchers do is they follow a single kind of focal individual all day from the time they get up till the time they go to bed. And they're taking a, a series of consistent data every 15 minutes, but then taking longhand data throughout the day about interesting things like mating and grooming and fighting and all that kind of stuff. So you're on foot in the morning, a chimp comes down from the tree. Wake up time is a really good time to collect fecal samples, by the way, just makes sense if you think about it, right? So you get there in the morning, collect all your samples, and you're with the chimps all day, and you're following them at a distance of about seven meters. That's what we consider kind of a safe distance for them and for us. They break it often, because um, you're either in their way or they're curious. So like me to the, the fourth row, and you're, just, you're with them and recording everything they do all day. Now we have several teams out. We have a team that's that's focused on the adults and we also have a specific team focused on mothers and kids as part of this grant. So there's going to be multiple teams out in the day um, following individual chimpanzees around, documenting their behavior, where they go, what they eat, collecting samples all day, and that has been going on essentially unchanged since 1966. And you and you're based in Pennsylvania, but yep. you're out there. How many? I'm out there once a year. Uh huh. When I was a student, I could go more, but then I invested in my own offspring, and it all went downhill from there. <laughs> These expensive children. Expensive uh, we've, we've, children. We've got another question in the back there. Yes, thank you very much for the talk. I'm interested in childbirth. Mm -hmm. So, could you talk a little bit about it? Uh, sociology, where the mother goes, anything about the any. No, just make sure you're holding it close so we can hear you. Okay, uh, childbirth. Anything about how many individuals are around when the child is, when the infant is born, uh, the first treatment, uh, pain levels, yeah. whatever. Yeah. 
So the, the question, for if you guys couldn't hear it, was about childbirth and the act of childbirth and, and how that happens in apes and in chimpanzees. Interestingly enough, uh, a colleague of mine is finalizing a, a paper and analysis of that right now, but it's highly variable. Um, so the, the important thing to point out about chimpanzees is that they uh, are extremely aggressive within their own community, and infanticide is a real risk from com, from stranger ch chimpanzees, but also from chimpanzees in your community, both males and females. So a, a newborn baby is incredibly vulnerable. Its mother is subject to infanticidal attacks. And so because of that, what often happens is that mom goes on a bit of a maternity leave and wants to be by herself um, when she gives birth to that baby. Now, we of course have outliers. We have a very, had, she's passed away now, a very dominant female named Fifi. Um, who had more babies than anybody else. She's the one in that picture touching Jane. I mean, she's kind of the best documented animal, I think, on the planet. Very comfortable in her community and also with humans. And she would give birth, like, right in front of tourists. Like, <laughs> she just, like, you know, her, her sons were always alpha male. Like, she wasn't worried about this infanticidal thing. Rock but, star behavior. Yeah, but typically there is a real maternity leave and we don't know much about it because if they decide to be where we can't find them, we can't find them. So I can't answer your question really well because we don't get to see it very much. How, how distinctive are these between different great apes? Um, are, are these wildly different and, and some of the things you're talking about here as far as weaning and, and, and childbirth, uh, they tend to be parallel in, in um, orangutans or in well, gorillas? are a little bit uh, weird um, in the great apes because they're mo they're pretty solitary and 90% arboreal, so we don't see a lot of what happens with orangs because it happens way up in the trees and you only see one orang at a time. Whereas I'm typically seeing about 10, 15 chimps at a time. And gorillas, what typically happens is that um, the the researchers or the the trackers show up and there's a new baby and it was born overnight. But what happens with us for chimpanzees is that we, well now we know a female is pregnant because human pregnancy tests work on them. And you just, you just have to be standing in either the right place or wrong place at the right time to get a urine sample, um, depending on how you look at it. Morning, also good for that. Um, so we, know, we typically know now when they're pregnant. Um, and, and then if we don't see them for a while, it's, the assumption is that they're either gonna come back not pregnant uh, and m maybe we'll have a baby. There's another one back there. Question? Yeah, I had a question. Um, you mentioned that you weren't sure what the function of the, the suckling was later, later in the later years. I have a 13-year-old who still likes to have his back scratched late at night. Um, <laughs> yeah. How much cuddling do these gorillas do besides you know, the nursing? Is that, is that the primary way that they bond with the youth, or is there a lot of physical interaction? No, that? there's a ton. There's a, that's a really good point. There's a ton of cuddling. I mean, there's a ton of contact. In fact, a baby ape is is in contact with its, with its mother 100% of the time throughout most of the first year. But then what apes switch to, as opposed to just cuddling, is grooming. And so grooming is a, is a very uh, validated metric of social affiliation and social bonding. So mothers spend a ton of time grooming their kids. Kids don't groom their parents so much. Anybody who's a parent isn't surprised about that. Um, 
but also it's it it also is a good proxy for us for for adult friendships as well. So we actually use grooming metrics to understand which chimpanzees are friends. Um, so the cuddling, the the function, the, how that looks in apes is this grooming behavior, and there's intensive grooming between moms and kids all the time. Not so much between dads and kids and chimps because, like I said, it's a promiscuous mating system, and as far as we know, dads don't know which kid or if that kid is theirs. And we'll one more from the audience, but let me ask you, um, what's the relationship between the park and the, all this research you're doing with conservation mm -hmm. and or with the anti-poaching things? There's, a, there's a, a, a lot of things obviously going on there too. Right. Um, so I should say that neither of those populations of apes would be alive today without the research. I mean, if Jane and Diane hadn't been there, those populations of apes would be gone. And that's only from 60 years. Um, the, the behavioral research really put those parks on the map. And, and are those populations stable, growing? What's so the, the mountain gorilla population is actually growing. The problem is their habitat is not. <laughs> so that starts to run into a little bit a problem because they live at the top of these volcanoes and the volcanoes don't go any higher. So, um, so the, the Fosse Fund is working on that. Both the, the Jane Goodall Institute and the Fosse Fund have incredibly positive working relationships with the parks. They're separate entities. The parks management is a, is a country organization and the research organizations are NGOs. But in both cases with the Jane Goodall Institute and the Diane Fosse Fund, there's heavy collaboration in terms of anti-poaching, conservation, um, a lot of, of uh, kind of cross-pollination between the behavioral research and how that impacts kind of the conservation direction of the parks. Yeah. And, and you see, as you sort of touched on briefly, but the, the in-country expertise yeah. is, a, is a part of right. continuing that effort as well. So I think one of the things that uh, is important and has been a real focus at least uh, for the Gombe researchers, which I can speak to more directly over the last decade, is that the future of this research should lie in the Tanzanian people that live in that country, who, whose legacy is those, those chimps. So when I showed the, the picture of Jane's legacy, there's a whole bunch of you know, white faces in the middle of this conference, but there's a whole bunch of Tanzanian faces um, that were highlighted in the edges, and that's you know, investing in Tanzanian PhDs, Tanzanian veterinarians, and making sure that our on-site staff is run by Tanzanians and investing in their investment in conservation and behavior in their country. And both the Jane Goodall Institute and the Diane Fossey Fund, who I don't work for, by the way, so it's not much a commercial, um, they, they've both invested heavily in building that local expertise. Yeah. Do we have another? There we go. Hi. Thank you. Great talk. Um, so I had one question. So it seems like we think a lot about the nutritional relationship between mm -hmm. the, the babies and the mothers. So to what extent and what hypotheses do you have about what they're learning behaviorally during that time? So maybe they're not necessarily there for purely the goodies, mm -hmm. but what, what can we tell that they're learning from their mother at those early ages? Well, certainly, I mean, just being in proximity to mom is a great source of comfort. So if, 
I mean, some of you that have had kids have, might have dealt with this, but like whenever there's a ruckus in the group, like a kid runs immediately to her mom, and if it's a young enough kid, they go immediately to the nipple. And it's like, you were just eating. I mean, come on. Like that, that is clearly a comfort thing. So that proximity to mom is a source of comfort. Obviously, suckling when a, an infant is distressed is a source of comfort. Um, in terms of the, <laughs> the learning, though, remember that this is balanced by the fact that um, mom is selected to start at some point investing in that next offspring, right? So weaning, if it's at the appropriate time, is beneficial to the mom. And so the mom and kid are in conflict about when that weaning should occur. So the kid doesn't need... I mean, essentially, the kid doesn't need to be attached to the nipple to learn stuff, right? And the mom is motivated to get the kid off the nipple and invest in the next offspring. So that learning doesn't have to occur attached. And to, to kind of wrap things up, um, I kind of go back to this pretty unique relationship you have with uh, another researcher that, that you're... There's a handoff, and you tell me, but, but I think it, it's pretty unusual to have this kind of handoff. I mean, it's, a, it's not a typical subject, maybe. But I'm curious both, what was something about what that transition was like of, of coming in with, with a body of um, work that was already there, maybe some of which was a little untraditional or used different methods than might be the technological standard today, what have you. And then also, as you think about your experience with that, what are you thinking about as far as as it goes forward from you mm -hmm. and and both in terms of the um, the work that you're doing uh, there at the park, but but other research in in the community? What are what are you thinking about uh, how how to continue that knowledge uh, into the future? Yeah. Um, so so what's great about Jane uh, is that. You know, she's in regular contact with the researchers that are there working in Gombe. Um, she's amazing with, you know, when you, I see her about once a year and, you know, and I, she's like, okay, come by the house and tell me what, or the house at Gombe, come by the house, tell me what you're up to. I want to hear what's going on. I'm like, oh, I'm just doing this. I'm just doing this. And she's always super excited. And she'll always actually, beyond being excited, be like, you know, there was this time. And it's something that she's pulling out of the dark reaches that's not necessarily something I would have known to go looking for in the archives that I can then add to the story. So despite the fact that she's like, you know, dame of the British Empire, world peace, all the stuff she is, um, she's still very engaged um, and supportive of the researchers that are continuing her work, which is awesome. The, I think the, what I hope kind of the future is, is that we really empower the, the you know, the Tanzanian researchers that we've developed to have this be a real training ground and place for Tanzanian behavioral scientists and Tanzanian ex ape experts. I mean, of course, there's always going to be expats working there, but I mean, it, it really should be, the balance should be shifting to more local scientists, I think. And so the projects that I've been involved with always have kind of a local counterpart. And lastly, the work you shared with us tonight is pretty much brand new, I brand think, new. right? Yeah. Can, can I you mean, talk I found to out us? about some of that too stuff, like recently. <laughs> like 10 o'clock this morning. <laughs> no, not 10 o'clock this morning. No, a couple months ago when we submitted the grant, but yeah. Uh, but so uh, just, just tell us uh, briefly, uh, where does that seem to be headed? Where is it at in the process? Where does that seem to be yeah. headed? And, and yeah. So um, luckily we have 60 years of behavioral data 
um, the analysis of that weaning time and some of the variation is something I've been working on this year while I'm at Stanford. So that's from a publication standpoint will be submitted in the next couple of months. Um, the chimps continue to poop and we continue to pick it up. So we have, we have a biobank of, I'm not kidding, 3,000 samples that are getting ready to be exported and shipped to the U.S. for analysis. And in fact, on our road trip home from California back to Pennsylvania, I have to swing by Minneapolis to pick up some chimp teeth um, to get it to D.C. for the analysis there. So everything's kind of coming together. Well, um, that's, uh, that's all we have time for on stage, but you're gonna stick around yep. for a little bit. We hope you'll stick around, come up, ask questions, uh, and uh, keep this conversation going amongst yourselves as well. We have a little uh, thank you gift, Ooh, as we do for presents. all of our uh, speakers, a long now challenge coin oh. to remind you to seize the millennium. I got it. Thank you guys for your fantastic questions for being here, our speaker tonight. Thanks, everyone. If you enjoyed this talk, we hope you'll subscribe to hear more. You might also like Long Now's other podcast, Seminars About Long-Term Thinking, with more than 200 more long-term thinking lectures hosted by Stuart Brand. Subscribe to both at longnow.org slash podcast or wherever you like to listen.